0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP Conference in Seattle. The recording features readings by Brad Gooch, Ann Waldman, and Coleman Barks. You'll now hear Judith Baumel, Lee Brasetti, and Stephen Modica present introductions.
1: Thank you, Poets House. I want to welcome the brilliant director of Poets House, Lee Brissetti, who's going to tell you a little bit more about this afternoon's performance. So thanks a lot. Hi, everyone. Can you hear? Good. I'm Lee Brissetti. I'm the executive director of Poets House. And isn't it remarkable that a 13th century Persian poet, a man who was a scholar, a Muslim spiritual seeker, is America's best-selling poet. Why do readers flock to Rumi? We must immediately thank Coleman Barks, who has brought Rumi close to us. And so I begin thanking him with Rumi's own exhortation. Let the beauty we love be what we do. We thank Anne Waldman, a transcendent poet and American treasure, and Brad Gooch, Rumi's biographer, for being with us in the beauty of this work, and I thank all of you for being here. I'm going to make a few comments about Poets House, the sponsoring organization, and the work which has brought us here to present this event, and then I'm going to bring my wonderful colleague, Stephen Motika, up to say a little bit about the poets and to frame the event. But do not fear, do not have anxiety of the infinite. This will be brief. Poets House is one of the great places for poetry anywhere. A 60,000 volume open access poetry library free and open to all. In our beautiful new facility on the banks of the Hudson River in lower Manhattan, visitors work side by side in the library, pouring over their manuscripts or spelunking through the stacks. Really, it's a joyous place, and you can feel the energy. We have a magnificent children's room, an exhibition space, classrooms for workshops and master classes, and our programs, almost 200, on-site and uh, with affiliate libraries, emphasize dialogue and conversation. Also, I want to say that this is a place, even if you don't live in New York, that you should plan on putting in on your bucket list. You should plan on coming, and when you visit New York, make Poets House your base of operation. You can find treasures from our programmatic past online at poetshouse.org, along with our library catalog make sure as well that your book or your chapbook is in the collection because the library itself is a document of poetry in print in our nation. And it's really deeply moving. It's a deeply moving expression of community participation because every book has been a gift. You come to. For many years, we've partnered with other libraries, public libraries around the country to help them learn to do what we do, which is to make a center for the discovery of poetry. And for over 15 years, we've worked with them creating a model of programming, library training, so that they can make poetry come alive at their sites. Our latest partnership with libraries is in six cities, funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it focuses on poetries of the Muslim world. Um, many of you may know that poetry is the most beloved art form in the Muslim world. With our partner city, Lore, we've put together an 18 panel exhibit that travels to the partner libraries, a website, and a gorgeous speakers bureau that each city can pick from aligning both scholars to talk about the tradition and performance from centuries-old Sufi-verse and golden age Arabic poets to discussions of modernist and contemporary practitioners. Today's program celebrates the expansion of that program to four new cities, inviting more visitors into the beauty and pleasures of poetry and into its transformative ability to share human experience. Thank you so much. Here's Stephen. I also think you should give Stephen special love because he put this program together and at the very last moment he was asked to come up on stage and moderate because what we usually do is get people to come up and ask questions but There was a last minute change, so please give him a very warm welcome.
2: Thank you, Lee. Thanks to all of you for being here. In her classic book, Rumi and Sufism, the scholar Eva de Vitre Marovitch writes, having reached the metaphysical realization which leaves no doubt, Rumi wanted to be a master of awakening. He transmitted a teaching founded on knowledge He embodied his teaching in the most beautiful form. The content of his teaching is Sufism, which constitutes not a doctrine, but a way." Born in the first years of the 13th century, Rumi lived through Ganges Khan's invasion of the Mediterranean, the fall of the Persian Empire, the Mongols' rise and defeat, and the restoration of Byzantium. His work has provided inspiration and nourishment for 700 years. His principal body of work, the Masnavi, is a vast poem of 45,000 verses that stretches over six books. Anecdotes, prophetic traditions, legends, folkloric themes, and citations from the Qur'an follow each other, creating, in the words of R.A. Nicholson, a majestic river, calm and deep, winding its way between rich and varied scenery into the fathomless ocean. The lyric sections are comprised of quatrains and odes that have flown in the last few decades into English in the beloved translations by poet Coleman Barks, a student of Sufism for more than 35 years. Barks has turned Rumi, as Lee said, into the best-selling poet in this country, extending the poetic presence of this 13th century poet well beyond his own place and time. This afternoon, we'll hear from three distinguished American writers, poets, translators, biographers, Brad Gooch, Ann Waldman, and Coleman Barks about the role of Rumi now in the 21st century America and beyond. I want to thank these three writers for traveling to be with us this afternoon, and to thank AWP for presenting this event in their Literary Partners program. I'll give a brief introduction um, of the three speakers now, and then they'll come up here and make presentations and at the end, if there's time, we'll have a little conversation. And if you have a question, you can send it to me telepathically. <laughs> our first speaker will be Brad Gooch, who's in the middle. And he, as Lee said, is working on a biography of Rumi and new translations of Rumi. He is one of our leading literary biographers. And his Flannery, A Life of Flannery O'Connor, was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist and a New York Times bestseller when it was published in 2009. He's also the author of City Poet, The Life and Times of Frank O'Hara. Three memoirs, including the forthcoming Smash Cut, a memoir of Howard and Art in the 70s and 80s, which will be out next winter. Three novels, a collection of stories, Jailbait and Other Stories, chosen by Donald Barthelme for a Writer's Choice Award, and a collection of poems, The Daily News, published by Z Press, and which can be found on AbeBooks Books and on the stacks of Poets House. A Guggenheim Fellow in Biography, he is Professor of English at William Patterson University and lives in New York City. Our second presenter will be Anne Waldman, who is closest to me. She is the author of more than 40 books of poetry and prose. Her um, many titles include Fast-Speaking Woman, her selected poetry In the Room of Never Grieve, and most recently, the poetry collection Gossip Murmur and Jaguar Harmonics, which will be out this month. She has concentrated on the long poem as a cultural intervention with such projects as Structure of the World Compared to a Bubble, Manatee, Humanity, my personal favorite, and the monumental anti-war feminist epic, The Ovis Trilogy, Colors in the Mechanism of Concealment, a 25-year project which won the Penn USA Award for Poetry. She co-founded with Allen Ginsberg the celebrated Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University, it's now celebrating its 40th year, and she holds the position of Distinguished Professor of Poetics there. She received a 2013 Guggenheim Fellowship in Poetry, and she lives in New York City and Boulder, Colorado. And Coleman Barks, on the far end, is a poet, translator, and teacher. He has been translating Rumi since the mid-1970s and is the author of a score of Rumi translations, including The Essential Rumi, Rumi the Big Red Book, A Year with Rumi, and Rumi, Bridge to the Soul, among many others. His work with Rumi was the subject of an hour-long segment in Bill Moyer's Language of Life series on PBS, and he is featured poet and translator in Bill Moyer's poetry special, Fooling with Her Words. He is also the author of several collections of poetry, most recently, Hummingbird Sleep, just published by University of Georgia Press, and Winter Sky, New and Selected Poems. After three decades teaching poetry and creative writing at the University of Georgia, he now is Professor Emeritus and continues to live with his family in Athens, Georgia. Please join me in welcoming these writers.
0: So thank you, Stephen, and um, I'm thrilled to be on the stage with these literary superstars, Coleman Barks and Ann Waldman, um, explaining a little of my sort of counterintuitive project of writing a biography of a a Muslim poet, Persian poet, who died 800 years ago and aspired to the oblivion of no name and said, um, blessed are the hearts of those who burn away. And also, and I'm in the middle of this project, so um, it's a rare moment where I don't entirely know what I think yet, but um, I've sort of been enthralled to Rumi's poetry since at least the early 90s. It's been a kind of guilty pleasure of mine. I remember going to a friend's house in Miami then, and I was there for a week, sort of on vacation, and on the shelf were two volumes of translations Cambridge Don A J Arbery, and over the course of the week I read all of them. Um, I was kind of mesmerized, also puzzled a bit by this, and and then in the mid 90s when um, Coleman's book The Essential Rumi came out, which I remember well because that Christmas I received three three hardback. Um, copies of that book with <laughs> inscriptions from friends saying that you like no one else in the world would love these translations, um, which I did. And I think that Coleman really did capture this, this epic intimacy of, of Rumi's voice in a way. And also I remember at the time seeing a bumper sticker on a car um, with the line like out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. So I felt very yay for poetry to have pulled that Coleman pulled this off. Um, in 1999, I was working on a book called God Talk Travels in Spiritual America. And there was a chapter, the last chapter in the, the book was on Muslims in New York City. And I was reporting on a Sufi group and really became part of this group on the Upper West Side that met Friday nights and was led by Imam Faisal Raouf, who at that point <clears throat> was. Pretty unknown, recently more notorious for having been involved with Park 54, AKA the Ground Zero Mosque. Um, But this group, every Friday evening, it was mainly young Muslim Americans in their 20s and 30s, and their parents had come from Central Asia or Iran or Turkey or North Africa, And, um, and Faisal especially then would read from not so much the lyric poetry, but the talks and discourses of Rumi that had been collect, written down by students and collected in the Fihe Mafi. Um, so there I, got, you know started thinking uh, more about the life of Rumi, and also seeing this dimension, the cultural and religious dimension of Islam in his work, and um, so thought that I could write a biography of Rumi. <laughs> Um, that was when I sort of learned, and I've learned it many times since, how involved this sort of evanescent figure from eight centuries ago is in current geopolitics, really. So God Talk came out right after 9-11 in 2001. And when I went around to publishers with my idea of writing a biography of a Muslim mystic poet, they, I sort of <laughs> drew these blanks. I mean, <laughs> No one would really was responding. Um, So instead, I wrote a biography of of Flannery O'Connor, as Stephen said. Um, And though they might seem disconnected, to me they're connected, because um, Flannery O'Connor was also one of the rare writers who had this deep interest in theology and religion, and it informed her work, and the work wasn't propagandistic or church pamphleteering in any way. And Rumi also sort of pulls this off in poetry, I think. After that book came out, then an editor said to me, do you want to write another biography? And I said, no, never, Um, but I I always did want to write about Rumi. All of a sudden, this was the most wonderful idea. And I was trying, (laughs) I couldn't, so what had changed uh, in those years, I think you know, tragically, in a sense, we had invaded um, Iraq. Af- we were in Afghanistan. Um, that part of the world was then more familiar to people. Uh, terms like Sunni and Shia um, didn't seem so exotic and far away. They were in the 24-hour news cycle, and <clears throat> um, and I think also these editors shrewdly, before me in a way, understood that that writing about um, Rumi, you know, in a way, it was writing about the issues and geography and um, politics, religion, and literature of our time, also reflected in this kind of convex mirror of this figure from long ago so I, so I sort of set out I went to um, I started learning uh, Persian, which is the language that Rumi wrote in at. Um, an intensive program at University of Texas, Austin, and then an, uh, an immersion program in um, Madison, Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin, and then began to travel. The, you know, the map of Rumi's life covers over 2,500 miles. Um, he was born in 1207, in now we believe in Vaksh in Tajikistan, and I went to Vaksh, He writes, at one point, you can't go from here to Vaksh in a lightning flash. Um, I was also detained in Vaksh by the current iteration of the KGB. So again, again, was always sort of smashing up into um, current realities. Uh, I went to Samarkand in Uzbekistan, where Rumi, when he was five, witnessed a kind of traumatic siege. Um, And by then, his family was beginning to travel. westward, and, and it's kind of camel caravan that took at least a decade until they arrived in Konya in Turkey. <clears throat> um, and as Stephen mentioned, behind them were uh, Genghis Khan and the Mongols, sort of terrorists of the time, in a sense, who were destroying all these cities in Central Asia that Rumi had known of Samarkand and, and Balkh and Bokhara. Um, I sort of followed the the Silk Road route um, that his family would have followed through Turkmenistan and into Iran, um, sort of imagining what it was like for this boy to fall asleep hearing these Persian and Arabic love songs sung by camel drivers that, that kind of permeate his work later on. I went to Syria, and where Rumi studied in Damascus and Aleppo, in kind of traditional religious um, madrasa when he was in his 20s. And I was in Aleppo the week the Civil War broke out. Um, And I remember on a Friday, I was in the bazaar, which has since been destroyed by fire, um, and it was pretty quiet. Stores were clanging shut because people were going to Friday prayer service and I had out my notebook, and I was trying to figure out what things were like in the 13th century when Rumi was there. And I remember this guy, this kind of moment that biographers wait for, um, this young guy was coming towards me on a bicycle. He stopped, and he said, in this kind of British accent that Syrians have if they've been to school in England, um, are you a spy? So <laughs> I looked sort of startled. And, um, And then he laughed, so I felt mildly mollified. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing a book about Rumi, who was a poet from the 13th century. And then he said, Rumi, I love Rumi. Rumi's one of my favorite poets in the world. And then he started quoting to me from, I mean, even more archaic um, kind of translation uh, by Nicholson, another Cambridge Don, from the opening of the Masnavi, the Rumi epic that Stephen mentioned, um, which in the beginning is narrated by this reed flute that's been cut off from its bed, its reed bed. Um, and, he, and he recited, the secret of my song, though near, none can see and none can hear, which is what the flute says. And, and then he stopped and he gave me his card to his carpet shop, of course. And, um, but before going off, he said, you know, Rumi is one of the two or three great world poets. He said, like Shakespeare or your Walt Whitman, um, he never entirely tells his secret. And then he drove away. And I, <laughs> and I really felt that he had sort of, you know, handed me a kind of pass key at that moment, because, you know, it was an aha moment. So I thought, that's true. Um, Rumi does have these secrets, ser is a um, constant word in Rumi's poetry, secret, and he did have personal secrets, poetic secrets, I mean he was very much a poet in the Emily Dickinson mode for whom truth and circuit lay, and theological secrets. As a um, Sufi at the time, he, as now, is in conflict with the fundamentalist, Um, interpretation of Islam because of using um, poetry and music and dance as part of religious practice and meditation and by emphasizing the intimacy and nearness of God rather than this absolute transcendence. So all roads in Rumi interest eventually lead to Konya in Turkey where he lived most of his adult life and where in 1244 he met Shams, mean, at this time Rumi was 37 years old, and really a kind of traditional Muslim preacher and scholar, as his father and grandfather had been. Um, Shams, who comes to town, is about 60, and a kind of outlier mystic, dressed in black felt. Um, And the two of them have this electric friendship for three years, and love. Um, And so it's a relationship of lover and beloved, or of friend and friend, or of disciple and sheikh, it's never entirely clear. Um, what is clear is that Shams kind of rattles um, Rumi's cage from the kind of conventional esteemed lifestyle um, into becoming a mystic. And after three years, Shams disappears and it's not clear why. Possibly murdered by a jealous son of Rumi, probably not. Um, possibly teaching Rumi an important lesson in separation, Jodai, um, but he does disappear. in Rumi, I mean, to me, seems to have a kind of meltdown at, the, at this separation, and, and copes with this by writing poetry. So almost all of the poetry that we have, which is a lot, from Rumi, comes from these last 30 years of his life, from the age of 37 to 67, when he dies, he writes over 3,000 gazal, which are like sonnets, love poems, um, to shams and to the Prophet Muhammad, or to God, all at once. So the ambiguity of it is part of his game, in a sense, in poetry. He writes over 2,000 Rubaiyat, which are four-line quatrains, like the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. He writes in couplets the six-volume spiritual epic, longer than the Divine Comedy, the Masnavi. Um, and then at the end of his life, the, um, the death of Rumi is important in many ways, the, I mean, in terms of how he approached his death. The, in Konya, the shrine to Rumi is visited by, last year, three million people, about 5,000 people a day. Um, He framed his death for us in a way, calling it his wedding day, day of of reunion. Um, He then kind of choreographed his funeral, which had musicians, people chanting his poems, as well as priests and rabbis and imams in the procession. Um, And he was writing poems about his death up until the end. The, the main commemoration of Rumi and Konya is on the anniversary of Rumi's death on December 17th, and the sort of main event is there's a, now a kind of stadium-sized venue where the whirling dervish ceremony is performed. Um, the, Rumi, while he was alive, would whirl while he was meditating and while he was um, Composing poetry that was kind of dictated. Um, that was then codified after his death into this kind of elegant um, meditative dance, as his life was, in a sense, codified into the Mevlevi movement of Sufi whirling dervishes, similar to Francis of Assisi and turning into the Franciscan order. Um, when I went to the, that ceremony, uh, the Turkish prime minister spoke for a half an hour. The president of Iran was supposed to arrive, but didn't. And I walked down one wrong hallway, I remember, and was met by these guys with gigantic machine guns. So I mean, so again, the sense in which somehow, this delicate figure is also a player in contemporary politics so much. Um, the next night, I, my guide was this young woman who'd been drawn to Sufism by a best-selling novel in Turkish the year before about Rumi and Shams. And she <clears throat> dropped me off near this house and said, this is a Sufi house you should go in. So I went to the gate, and I was kind of stopped. And I said, "zikr," which I'd learned in Faisal's group, was meditation or recollection in Sufism. So they let me in. Um, inside the house was very much a kind of hothouse where the living room, kitchen, halls, courtyard were full. And on a kind of coffee table of a stage, um, one dervish, both men and women, would get up after another and whirl while people were playing drums and the reed flute and then get down. Um, There I felt much more kind of zapped by by the spirit of what it was like um, when Rumi was alive, in a sense, than in the the more official venue, really. but when I was saying that I'm in the middle of my project, I mean, I think the kind of mysteries are where Rumi's joy comes from. I mean, his, he's very much a poet of joy um, and of love, but it's not you know, like wind chime stuff in a sense. I mean, he's very, it comes out of dealing with separation from um, shams and from love and from you know the source of creation in some way. And then it comes out of, Facing death, and um, if you can um, understand how Rumi approaches these, you know, essential kinds of themes, you know, then you have even more of a pass key than than I probably have yet. But at the um, and as as when Rumi was dying, as I said, he wrote these series of poems. A few lines from one are um, etched on the shrine in Konya, and I'll just read those couple lines because when in doubt, quote, Rumi, and he's also such a great antidepressant. Uh, <clears throat> if you visit my grave, my tomb will make you dance. Be sure to bring a tambourine. So, thank you. <clears throat> so
3: hard to be on stage with these milior fabri, these, these better makers and who knows so much more. I was asked to talk about the um, ecstatic tradition, and so I'm calling this little talk Poetics and Erotics of Ecstasy, Rumi. Can language fully convey reality? This is one of the great meditations in my own life as a poet. And what if that reality is excessive, mystical, radical, erotic, transgressive, ecstatic, and seems to point toward the ineffable? Is there language that cannot only point to the ineffable, but capture the ineffable? And when it is composed on the tongue, extempore, how does that work? Those utterances, those horizons. What makes Muhammad Jalal al Din Rumi so provocative inside these issues? Are these timeless issues? one of the most prolific poets of all times, producing thousands of lyrical guzzles for his beloved Shams, his mentor, his other, his master, his love. Tens of thousands of narrative didactic masnavi verses, one of the most popular poets in the West, as you've heard. And why poetry? Why is that the form? What is the reach in poetry? How is it choiceless? Because I think it is choiceless. The one possible view is that the Quran teaches that God taught Adam the names which implies that possibly names are themselves aspects of the divine. And actually, they come before the world of creation or the phenomenal world that we find ourselves in. There's a pre-stage of naming. In the beginning was the word and so on. Perhaps words and names are created by God himself. If you're a believer, one might see that the, the names are there to celebrate himself. And perhaps we use words as, as just shadows, shadows or uh, kinds of reflections of what what is inspired by uh, God, God inspiring the poet in the first place. A compelling thought for those of, of a certain kind of faith, and others might conjure different sorts of muses. What would the secular muse be? What would that view be? Whatever it is, there's clearly needed some object of uh, devotion and of transference. Is that not true, all you lover poets out there? Can you be beside yourself? for love, aren't you beside yourself for love? Isn't that what motivates you? Ek stasis, ek outside or beyond, stasis, standing still, stationariness, the body-spirit dichotomy is always interesting here. Removing oneself from a given place where ego is no longer in a physical frame. What is this about that physical frame, this container, this reed, which is so invoked as a metaphor for what the, uh, Poetry is in this case, the the common view. This was the first thing I knew of Rumi as a child. You know, we're just reeds on which the wind plays. So, thinking about the container, and in Buddhism, it's very important that you take care of your body. Your body is the container for this wisdom, it's your way, you know, your vehicle. Ecstasy is close to Fana, F A N A, in the Sufi tradition, which is the dissolution or annihilation of this self. Again, into this higher plane, into the god, the merging into the su- supreme, sublime other, an annihilation of that ego self into non-existence. Um, one Buddhist slogan is, we're here to disappear, and it's such a relief. So this entrance into non-existence is a return to the original situation, which, where we dwelt, you know, at peace with God before, as I was saying, preceding the creation, preceding the, the naming that comes before. This is the state that is sometimes, again, called the annihilation. This is this fauna, uh, the state that, that where ego's limitations are seen and felt, and there's the, the uh, bursting through of the true self, and one needs to throw oneself into this annihilation. Now, I love this sense of gesture, which you have, of course, in the uh, whirling, Dance, and the quote from Rumi, we are, our existences are all non-existences, but you are absolute existence, appearing as annihilation. It's a great sort of conundrum statement, this, this idea that you are kind of both, both, but you, you, you can only exist without the other. I've been looking for myself, but I am the same as he, is another line of his. Um, and I'm curious also about the you know, sense of identity in all this in that search. This is from The Drunken Universe, uh, Hakim Bey and and, uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson's book. This is a sort of paraphrase. Out of this gradually ripening experience of love, the lover comes to realize that the beloved, the goal, cannot be reached as long as he remains locked into a world of opposites, as long as he himself remains himself. And Rumi tells the story of a man who knocks at the door. Who's there, asks the voice from within. It's me, says the man. Go away then, answers the voice. There's no room for me. The man goes away and wanders in the desert until he realizes his error. He returns and knocks again at the door. Who's there? asks the voice. Thou, answers the man. Then come on in. Uh, This is the original knock-knock joke, I think. (laughs) That strange, reoccurring, unifying binary of auto ego monitic I call them Trying to develop this new word for ecstasy as manides, the minot, manotic erotics, the swerve, God creating man in his own image and being in love with that image. It's, this constantly fascinates me and magnetizes me in a world of our post, 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 post modern poetics, in which indeed all times do feel curiously contemporaneous. And what is the transmission here? Um, and then, you know, there's something also about this extempore and how you feel, you know, you feel that lift, you feel that swerve. Uh, I have an early poem called Makeup on Empty Space, and it literally began extempore, just repeating this. Empty, I feel it putting makeup on empty space, patent is convening, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And empty space became, uh, you know, this anaphoric mantra about kind of disappearing. And I see it as a sort of Buddhist text. But anyway, back to that swerve, itself in the poetry, albeit through a variety of translation, composed as oral horizon for ritual dance, a perpetual turning, a swirling, in the case of the dervish dance, a form constantly readdressed and reconfigured and invoked, though all the forms, as we have heard, and are based in a classical Persian through Arab parameters that, that still make a case for this performative indeterminacy through these 21st secularized eyes and ears a strange indeterminacy for acts redone. So again, that kind of interesting, um, not really contradiction, but how, it, how something really continues here in this dynamic of the self and other and the, the God looking at itself. Um, Persian poetry and Sufism, as we heard from Brad, developed in the east of Iran, Rumi's parents settling in Konya, and then this figure, the Shams, was from Tabriz. So the map is very interesting, how this legacy is sustained today in many parts of the world. And uh, if you start reading some of the um, places where you know, Sufism has, has gone, you, you, in our country alone, you have from Brattleboro, Vermont, to Boulder, Colorado, uh, speech is that wind which was formerly water. It becomes water when it casts off the veil. Another room. I'm gonna interject some of these slogans. Here's a, a Masnavi uh, translation by Arbery. The mystic soul circles about annihilation even as iron about a magnet, because annihilation is true existence in his sigh. His eyes, having been washed clean of squinting and error, the drunkard made ablution in urine, saying, O Lord, deliver me out of impunity. God answered, first realize what impunity is. It is not meet to pray crookedly and topsy-turvy, for prayer is a key, and when the key is crooked, you will not attain the flavor of opening the lock. I fall silent, all of you leap up. The cypress-like statue of my idol cries, come. Emperor of Tabriz, my king, Shamsi Din. I have closed my lips. Do you come and open again? That energy to lift up, the uh, swerve. I'm talking about the top. You know, just the language invoked here in this translation. A union with him transported my spirit. My body paid not attention, though disengaged from the body, he became visible to me. I became old in grief for him. But when you name him, all my youth returns. So thinking again of this clinamen, this kind of the lyricism of the swerving, the sudden change in direction, this uh, swerve also away from predecessors because there, there was a marked change in Rumi's life, as as Brad mentioned when, when uh, Shams came into it, and the homoerotics of this swerve, and again back to that love affair in a way with the mirror image. And one one fully dissolves into another. One is dreaming as one, in the words of William Carlos Williams, where language, love, desire, worship come together in radical gesture. And it's risky as well, that swerve, that ecstasy, that annihilation. And then the invocation, the backdrop of this profound You know, passionate conviction, tradition, code, ethos, and practices of Islam, and what that extraordinary religion demands and requires of the devotee. For it is a two way dynamic or swerve, this unifying binary and that backdrop of a spiritual calling and cultural inheritance in a way being the occasion, I mean this is sort of transgressive thing to say, but from Frank O'Hara, the occasion of these ruses, as O'Hara might quip, a place where a mysterious relationship played out in one of the most creative, passionate, poetic interventions of all time. Rumi's work through the centuries has inspired so many spiritual teachers, scholars, translators, poets uh, from all walks, um, the, the, You know, we can go from Hans Christian Andersen to Hegel, to Martin Buber, to Murcia Iliade, to Eric Fromm, to Philip K. Dick, to Nazim Hikmet, to uh, Gurdjieff, of course, Robert Duncan, who wrote a beautiful poem after Rumi entitled Circulations of the Song, which was written for his lover and longtime partner, Jess, and to Robert Bly, to Coleman Barks, and to Bill Merwin, uh, to mention a few. So, you know, he's continually uh, celebrated um, But going into this sense of a lineage, this, this lineage of spiritual heavies, we have Atar and Hafiz, the great Indian mystic Kabir. Of course, the Bible's Song of Songs, which celebrates sexual love and within Jewish tradition reads as an allegory between God and Israel and which Christians read as an allegory between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. They're the nine shaman songs of India. And then we have Greece's Sappho, 630 BCE, Oh, it puts the heart in my chest on wings, for when I look at you, even a moment, no speaking is left in me, no tongue breaks, and thin fire is racing under skin, and in eyes no sight and drumming fills ears, and cold sweat holds me, and shaking grips me all, greener the grass I am, and dead or almost. That's Ann Carson's translation. Sappho. Is Sappho addressing a lover, or is this her worship of Aphrodite speaking? Then we have Tibet's 11th, 12th century Milarepa, the green-skinned one. He lived on nettle broth. Our cloth-clad yogin and his 100,000 songs, although there are a few less than 100,000. And this is his devotion to Lord Buddha and the path of enlightenment, free again from ego and grasping. And these are very traditional uh, poem forms in the Tibetan tradition, and they're a kind of practice called Doha. Rumi is also in the lineage of India's Mirabai, the 15th century Rajasthani Hindu mystic princess who worshiped and performed bhajans for her beloved dark lord, the blue-skinned Krishna. And if you're in India, they're very common. You hear you know, pop songs, pop bhajans, bhajans with uh, Mirabai's uh, lyrics. Friends, without that dark raptor I could not survive. Mother-in-law shrills at me, her daughter. Who could abandon a love developed through uncounted lifetimes? The dark one who is Mirabai's lord. Who else could slake her desire? Translation by Andrew Schelling. Then you have the 20th century's barefooted Maria Sabina, the uh, Sierra Mazateca Mexican curandera, curer, curer, shaman, who led participants through an all-night Valeda an all-night watch, imbibing the psilocybin mushroom as a way to God, invoking the little saints. Her litanies invoke Christian saints and also Jesus himself. I'm the day woman, I'm the doll woman, I'm the sun woman, I'm a crystallite woman. Water that cleans, flowers that clean, water that cleans as I go. And one invokes Christian, myst- Christian mystics, the cerebral, more cerebral Sor Juana, Saint Teresa in her wild lament, as well as John Donne. And then we have Whitman's pantheism, Dickinson at her, in her uh, wild nights, wild nights mode. Next is a paraphrase from the rifu i mararif written in the 13th century, which is a description of the Daur, D-A-U-R, the Sufi's rotatory dance, to give some texture to the ritual There's performative aspects of the dervish world. The dervish is holding each other by the hands, putting forward the right foot, increasing at every step the strength of the movement of the body. They uncover their hands, take off their turbans, form a second circle within the first, intertwine their arms, lean their shoulders against each other, and raise their voices and increasingly utter... La Allah, illa Allah, and it's called out from the minaret. This is the, you know, which you hear from the minarets five times a day at the times of ritual prayers, and Sufis consider the deeper meaning and sacrality of the phrase, noting that it begins with the negation, la, no God but God, la, no God but not God, la ilaha illa Allah, sweeping away the idolatry of false gods, The Sufis took this as a confirmation of their belief that a worshiper must first pursue this negative, this no, and obliterate all all traces of idolatry and discipline, that sinful longing for this and that, until you reach this fana, this self-effacement, this annihilation. To convert to Islam, one uttered this in front of witnesses. No God but God, balancing from side to side, placing their hands on their face, breast, abdomen, and knee, all exclaiming this, Shout this chant. Pale of face, languishing of eyes, some sigh, some sob, some weep, some perspire, great drops. They accelerate their movements, they incite one another. La ilaha illallah. During their hymn, they remove their turbans, bare their shoulders against each other, compass the hall at a measured pace, striking their feet against the floor. And again, the devotional chant. And then there's another sort of uh, more transgressive in, uh, part of this text where they take down cutlasses from their niches, heat them red hot present them to the sheikh who blesses them, raising them to his mouth, breathes on them, then gives them over to the dervishes. Transported by frenzy, they seize upon the glowing irons, gloat upon them, lick them, bite them, hold them between teeth and cool them in their mouth. Others stick them into their sides. If they fall under their wounds, they do not complain, and the sheikh comes again, breathing now upon the wounds, rubs them with saliva, promises speedy recovery. And then 24 hours later, nothing is to be seen of these wounds. And I've witnessed this kind of thing in uh, the Chris dances in Indonesia, and in some uh, Buddhist ceremonies. Not this kind of what seems to be a violent uh, gestures, but in any case, this is uh, you know one an extent a possible extension. They call the red hot irons ghoul, Chiewel, the red rose, because the use of them is agreeable to the soul of the dervishes as the perfume of the rose is to the voluptuary. Dance when you're broken open. Dance if you've torn the bandage off. Dance in the middle of the fighting. Dance in our blood. Dance when you are perfectly free. God said of Mohammed, he is an ear. And that's from Coleman Barks's Dance with the Bandage Off. Then there's Sama, S-A-M-A. Rumi had never practiced Sama until he met Uh, shams, a difficult word to translate. It is an audition, a spiritual concert. The sama involved music and poetry to focus concentration on God and induce this sort of uh, trance-like state. And when it happened, it moved the listener to move into this motile meditation, waving hands, stamping feet. Uh, And this practice was evidently well known in Eastern Iran for centuries before the birth of Rumi, but it was Shams who directed him to this practice, following, to follow this practice, whatever you're striving for will increase in Sama. Sama in some places was forbidden because it increased lust and passion, but for seeker and lovers of God it was permissible because it focused attention on the divinity. Rumi said that Shams set him on fire and burned away his books. This metaphor of the rose, the hot red ghoul is intriguing as it is essential to the probe into this poetics and erotics, uh, particularly interested in how poetry becomes ecstasy, becomes performance, as I said before, and the sense of the probe, the cutlass and its penetration, seems to also be a device or trope in Persian poetry. In Lewis's biography of Rumi Franklin D. Lewis's, he talks of how homoeroticism pervaded medieval Persian poetry. The beloved in most guzzles is androgynous and often equated with a leader a ruler. Sexuality stands in for this power relationship in the poetry. The penetrator is the active one the holding the dominant position. The penetrated one is the objectified beauty that is equated with femininity. And so these early collections of medieval poetry are rife with boastings and insults around this notion of penetration. And talking to my dear friend Hakim Bey, Peter Landborn Wilson, he said, Shams was known to be of the school of love. and. Um, he he said to me, "How should I think of this, you know, relationship?" And he talked about it as as Brad mentioned, you know, a, we can we're not absolutely clear, but a, certainly a relationship of love and also a, a mentor and disciple. And he thinks Rumi would not have succumbed to the penetration of his beloved Shams. You know, the jury's out. But this transformation of Rumis from scholar, jurist, teacher, husband, father is thus historically marked by this meeting with this mysterious figure and uh, who turned his life around. An untutored charismatic, some equate him to Socrates because of his poverty, and then this violent, disturbing death. Is there a path beyond mastership and discipleship? And so Hakim Bey said again in a recent conversation see this as a love affair whether or not it was consummated and these are human beings right i spoke of what it takes to write love poetry there has to be something palpable there you know the poetry it is scintillating energized rapturous sexy. there's no point in trivializing or allegorizing their profound connection which also leads to the divine so you know just to meditate on that shams how could i offend i am ever fe- ever fearful to kiss your feet lest my lashes scratch them Union with you is most precious, alas that life will. I wish I had a world full of gold to bestow upon my union with you. Um, At one point Rumi asks Shams if he is a sorcerer, what would witchcraft accomplish? The mention of God works well enough. And then there's a wonderful list of names, uh, all these names that uh, heroes of Sufism that Rumi tells Shams he is. You are my special elite messenger of God, my messenger of the placeless, absolute spirit. You are the Kodaban, which means God. And this very hyperbolic language Uh, which is not unprecedented in this tradition, but it's very extreme, I think, in this particular situation. In conclusion, I think of my own fascination with Sufism, early reading of Idris Shah, an early interest in spiritual practice outside the Judeo-Christian nexus, particularly Buddhism, a turn to the East, early trips to India, to South America, to Iran, to work in Indonesia in the 80s, uh, more recent work in Morocco, to entheogens, to investigations of shamanism. Um, see, seeing the whirling dervishes at the Asia Society in New York City as a very young person was transfixing. And I was interested in this idea of whirling to empty oneself, to be at one with a world already spinning under our feet. If you just meditate on that every day, we're walking around feeling so um, unstable or stable, too stable, too solid, and you know to meditate on the Planet, actually spinning under our feet. So I wanted to leave you with that. But I was, you know interested at this interest in the metaphysics of this mo- of motion, and alignment with the music of the spheres. I'm drawn to circles and spirals of endeavor in art over strictly narrative forms. I watched the dervishes later at an arts residency and tried the disciplined practice myself. I thought of turning in the womb, I thought of stream of consciousness. I thought of language as an exit to ecstasy. And I felt inspired to cry out, to sing, to extemporize, and also thought about how the world is perpetually made up of such linguistic signs and maps and pathways. And it's a really uh, important to be, I think, as artists connected with our body and the gestures. I mean, so m- much of my poetry seems to come from this physical place. I mean, I'll feel it in you know parts of my body, and then it has to come out in some way. So these, you know, a sense of these, pathways, punctuations that we can approximate in poetry and in a spontaneous poetics and in performance. Um, So again, thinking of how this particular tradition is so tied to the word, the sense of naming before uh, creation, the centrality of Sufism within Islam, uh, conveying a purity of revelation, and the uh, ways that, that the uh, teaching is taught, and in Rumi's case, through all these, I've been reading more of these you know, ecstatic quotes, but you know, fables, tales, hagiographies, and so on. Um, the, Let's see. I admit to a certain resistance to the abstractions of theism and find poetry weakest when it chases after the effable and more interested in the aspects of ecstasy when the object is vivid, palpable, spinning in the room, in the void, with you. Oh, mouthpiece of God, eye of truth, Salvation of creatures from this seething ocean of fire. You are mine, you are mine, you are mine.
4: I think now I read some of these poems from 800 years ago that were spoken as part of his work with a learning community about the size of this group. And uh, they're all intended to open the heart and to search out and find the truth and to say it and to celebrate the glory and the indignity of being in a human incarnation Remy said just being in a body and sentient is cause for rapture. It's also cause for embarrassment and shame. Just being, but mainly it's cause for rapture. This is how a human being can change. There's a worm addicted to eating grape leaves Suddenly, he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him, and he's no longer a worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard, too the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. Find your place and close your eyes so your heart can start to see. When you give up being self-absorbed, your being becomes a great community. Find your place and close your eyes So your heart can start to see. When you give up being self-absorbed, your being becomes a great community. That breaking open of the ego and the opening of the heart occurred when he met Shams de He says, what I thought of before is God... I met today in a human being. Sham says <clears throat> in his notebooks <clears throat> that what frees you is not words, but rather someone's presence, their actual being. That is the scripture you must attend to. The power that I am hoping to give does not come to you by following a line of words across a page. A real lineage comes down through personal interaction with another human being. Here are a few um, short Rubai, four line poems. I'm so small. I can barely be seen. How can this great love be inside me? That's a big question, isn't it? How can this great love be inside me? (laughs) And then he answers it with a metaphor. Look at your eyes, they're small, but they see enormous things. Somebody came up to me at that Stafford reading the other day, I mean yesterday, and told me a story about her first grader, she'd been reading Rumi to and her first grader went up to his teacher and said, I'm small. But I can see enormous things. (laughs) Somehow the, uh, the eye can contain the night sky. That moment, this moment, this love comes to rest in me, many beings in one being. In one wheat grain, a thousand sheaf stacks, inside the needle's eye, a turning night of stars. In one wheat grain, a thousand sheaf stacks. That's just the truth, isn't it? I mean, just in one wheat grain, of course it contains a thousand sheep. I mean, just give, give it a little time. And the needle's eye, human eye, can contain a turning night of stars. I love this, this is a new, a new one. I mean, new, it's 800 years old. <laughs> <clears throat> I hadn't worked on it before. <laughs> uh, as long as I am alive, this, this is who I am and what I do, my peace my resting place, what I want, and its satisfaction, truth. By this, I mean this day, I cannot say this love, this being that is after me, that I am after, quarry chasing quarry. That's called theology. And all he does is say this. As long as I am alive this, this is who I am and what I do. My peace, my resting place, what I want, my desire, and its satisfaction, truth. By this, I mean this day, I cannot say. Whenever he mentions sunlight, He's talking about Shams and God at the same time. Shams means the sun. So whenever he mentions sunlight or the day, he's talking about his friend. That mystery, the mystery of the friend, which nobody can talk about. The beloved. Robert Bly once said, "Coleman, I want you to give a little talk for an hour on the On the beloved, and uh, like a fool, i tried <laughs> and you don't know to ever fall into that trap, you know you can't do it uh it's just your words turn into dust in your mouth, you know your just are gibberish <laughs> uh, so um, sometimes. He calls that mystery a kind of majesty. And he talks about some sometimes in the terms of weather. When it's cold and raining, you that you, that other, that friend, you are more beautiful. When it's cold and raining, you are more beautiful. And the snow brings me even closer to your lips the inner secret that which was never born you or that freshness and i am with you now i can't explain the goings or the comings you enter suddenly and i am nowhere again inside the majesty Many big questions arose in uh, Rumi's community. What is a true human being? Where is the discipline? Where is the balance between discipline and surrender? Uh, And the question that he answers in this one what is the soul? What is the soul? consciousness. The more awareness, the deeper the soul. And when such essence overflows, you feel a sacredness around. It is so simple to tell one who puts on a robe and pretends to be a dervish from the real thing. We know the taste of pure water. We do know the taste of pure water. Words can sound like a poem, but not have any juice, no flavor to relish. How long do you look at pictures on a bathhouse wall? Soul is what draws you away from those pictures to talk with the old woman who sits outside by the by the door in the sun. She's half blind but she has what soul loves to flow into. She's kind. She weeps. She makes quick personal decisions and she laughs so easily. Soul is what draws you away from those images that dilute your longing. To go and talk with the old woman that sits outside by the door in the sun. She has what soul loves to flow into. She's kind, she weeps. She makes quick personal decisions. I don't know what that means. (laughs) So I sorta do. You see people sometimes, hey, just give me four of those. Just just moving quickly through, you know. Uh, She makes quick personal, it doesn't matter, you know. We can live anywhere. (laughs) And she laughs so easily. Uh, One or two more. Oh, God, we've got to stop here. Uh, Yeah, we do. Yeah, no. Um, Well, I'll do this one. Rumi thinks there's a a kind of longing that uh, is at the core of every human being. And no one knows what that longing is for. No one can say what it is. We can live it out, but we can't uh, know what that longing is. It's probably not for real estate or, or for your own radio program. <laughs> yeah. So in this amazing poem, he says the longing is for the longing itself. It's getting more and more satisfying to me. (laughs) I didn't understand what he's talking about at first. One night, a man was crying, Allah, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic said so. I have heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer for that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep where he dreamed he saw Hitter, the guide of souls in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? Why did you stop praising? Because I never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. There, listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. (laughs) I want to hear some dogs names. What do you call your dogs? Buddha? Buddha? Una, Luna, Luna, Luna. Luna. Ringo, Ringo. (laughs) Aztec, yeah, what? Romeo. Okay. Pepper. There are love dogs no one knows the names of, but they do now. <laughs> Give your life to be one of those love dogs named brother. Ruddy. Anyway. We, we need to have some time for questions. It's 4.15. We've got to stop. Huh? Wait a few, just a few more. Okay. Uh, One more. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Get out of the mind. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. Wow. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. He's talking about five times prayer. He says there are hundreds of ways to do that. You know, you might not have to touch the ground at all. Might be just dance. Let the beauty we love be what we do. Take down a musical instrument. I'm not sure what that means either. Uh, There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. One more. There there, There is a light seed grain inside. You fill it with yourself or it dies. I am caught in this curling energy, your hair. Whoever is calm and sensible is insane. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you. Now we're... That was
0: wonderful. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much to Brad Gooch, Anne Waldman, and Coleman Barks for this wonderful panel. I believe they'll be signing books right now, post haste, out through the doors. So please get your copies at the the university bookshop and have these fine poets sign books for you. Thanks so much for being here.